0: Ideally, what would have moved you, and I say ideally, is the beauty of the liturgy itself and the ways you've experienced it. And that's the way the church needs to be celebrating the liturgy so that the the intensity and beauty of the Eucharistic experience of the church is where people are going, oh, my God, this is incomparable encounter with God. This is incomparable. That's why, why we need to celebrate the liturgy with this beauty that is presumed that it's celebrated with. And I'm telling you, if you're going to be priests, that's what you need to be thinking about.
1: Welcome back to the Theology of the Eucharistic Table podcast with Abba Jeremy Driscoll and seminarians of Mount Angel. Abba Jeremy is teaching four of us seminarians how the Catholic Mass informs our theology, a method which he calls Theology at the Eucharistic Table. And we invite you to join us in our discussions. If you learned from this podcast, we ask you to leave a review on iTunes, to like and share our Facebook page, to subscribe to our newsletter at at TheologyAtMountAngel.com. That's TheologyAtMTAngel.com and to personally invite a seminarian, a priest, or a seminary professor to tune in. We hope you enjoy.
2: Well, I, I did have a question, Father Abbott, about... Um, well, maybe it's not so much a question or a comment, but it seems like um, really our our understanding of the Trinity, our desire to, okay, maybe that's not quite right, our, our desire to uh, to learn more about the Trinity, do theology, um, really needs to stem from kind of a, a contemplation of this mystery, especially in, in the Eucharist, um, because it's in that it's like the more we do the mass, if you will, the more we have this opportunity to really delve into being with that multitude before the throne and the lamb standing as a slain. Um, It's like the more really theology is done on our knees there, the more, um, we're going to be finding ourselves incorporated into this mystery, um, and in in a in a I guess a healthy way, and without going without finding ourselves going astray by trying to trying to nail down what we know so much about the Trinity, or by trying to um, to just take over and lay out a certain theological understanding without, without really um, letting God lead us in the proper way. Um, yeah. It, it, I, it, I guess the Trinity, the Trinitarian theology for me uh-huh. draws me to draws me especially to need prayer as a part of my theology and especially yeah. of course the, the Eucharist. Yeah.
0: Yeah. You know, it's, uh, what that's, it's wise what you're saying in the sense of just, you know, staying inside the Eucharist. I, I think that this is something we're caught up into. I want to use that image actually, uh, you know, the apostle uses that at the beginning of the book of revelation on the Lord's day, I was caught up in, he says, ecstasy. Okay, well, maybe we're not going to be in ecstasy. But uh, but then he goes on to describe the liturgy. So we could say, on the Lord's Day, I was caught up into the liturgy. And uh, just what you just said, Ben, one is caught up into the Trinity. If we really are understanding the movements of the of the Eucharistic liturgy, we are caught up into the movement of love among Father, Son, and Holy Spirit toward us, the multitude of the church. And that's the, you know, that's the twofold movement that we have been talking about uh, throughout many of the master themes. And in this master theme, the movement of God toward the world In fact, being broken down in Trinitarian and ecclesial terms, God the Father moves toward the world by giving his Son together with the Spirit to the church, to the multitude, for the sake of the world. And the world, through the church's own self-offering, self-emptying, is supposed to be offering the world through the Son, in the unity of the Spirit, back to the Father. That's being caught up into the Eucharist, and at the same time caught up into uh, the Trinity, which I want to call that. That's back to Nelson's question, you know, where's where does this unity come from? Or what do you mean by unity coming from the Trinity and not from human efforts? What I'm just describing here is not a human effort to be united. I'm describing the effects of God's movement toward the world and us accepting that gift of the Son affects unity in us. We're not trying to whomp it up with our own bright ideas. God is giving us this when he gives us his Son. And you know my old maxima about why do we keep turning to the Eucharist i you know I'm describing this beautiful movement of God toward the world, and remember I said uh to on Concrete, I would have done this on the first day you were in my class. show me that, show me where I can find this revelation of God. Show me God giving his Son uh in the Holy Spirit, and I show you the church celebrating Eucharist sure, yeah
2: we've also. We've gone over a lot of master themes here, um, and I'm not sure if you've already touched on this in one of your earlier podcasts on the Trinity, but um, it's kind of like we're the we're at the summit, I guess, of, of the master themes here, speaking about the Trinity. Um, you kind of go up, you start with the first one, you work up to kind of the peak here, and we'll work back down the other side of the mountain, if you will. <laughs> yeah. And uh, it's also it's also kind of like that keystone in an arch, which holds the whole arch together, like an old stone arch. Um, would you would you refer to this master theme in in that way in regard to your other master themes?
0: Uh, yes, I think I would. It it's very definitely. Um, a sort of high point uh, and things lead up to it but also things flow out from it um, yes and you know we I think one of our per, perhaps the first one that we did on the Trinity I was here reading the Catechism and just saying you know the mystery of the Trinity the Catechism says it very bluntly the mystery of the Trinity is the central mystery of Christian faith uh, and, and then it goes on to say, you know, the whole history of the economy of God, meaning the whole history of God's actions in creation and in, in, in salvation history, the whole history of that is a manifestation of the Trinity. And not as an abstract piece of information, but as, uh, as an invitation to communion, in the divine life. And so when we say that we have communion in the divine life, that's just not vaguely communion with God, but it's entering into the Trinitarian uh, processions, the Trinitarian movement. And we come into the precise place uh, where the sun is. Uh, That's, you know, we just don't come vaguely into the Trinity, but we're, we're adopted into sonship which is to say we're, we're, we're so united with Christ in his place within the Trinitarian movements, that through him, with him, and in him, we turn toward the Father uh, and, and say, our Father. But we have that, that relationship that, that the Eternal Son has that is given us in him. And the Holy Spirit is, as I like to put it, is all over that. The Holy Spirit is affecting that. And, uh, and, and searching the depths of that and helping us to search the depths of that.
2: Yeah, wow.
0: Well, let's go on to this uh, on page 191, the bottom, the thing on the, the slain lamb. Why this insistence upon the slain lamb? That's very interesting. You know, in the book of Revelation, they, they, you, you know, you get all these visions and then here comes the lamb. Slain but standing, and this 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 happens. Uh, it, I don't I don't want to say repeatedly, but it, I mean, uh, there's a number of times where this slain lamb uh, is 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 put forth, and so I'm I'm asking the question as we should, as theologians, why why does this keep coming up, and what's it mean? Um, so I am saying that this is. Uh, an insistence on one who is distinct from God, the father, but shares the throne with him. And so this is also a part of the revelation of the Trinitarian mystery. But what I find wonderful about this, and, and this is what I write next, it's a revelation that is based on the historical slaying of the one who is different from the father. So that this revelation that that the slain lamb is in heaven is quite striking because I like to say that's a piece of history appearing in heaven. Uh, uh, it's the crucifixion. The moment of crucifixion mm-hmm. is appearing in heaven. So that's it's a it's a way of saying, you know, we're not going to have any knowledge of the Trinity except but through the slain Lamb. Mm-hmm. It's through the crucifixion that we come to Trinity. It's not, it's not by sitting down real hard and thinking it through and say, oh, God must be three in one. Mm-hmm. No, you, you only get that from the slain lamb. And that's, I'm trying to pause on that because that's a huge dimension of this revelation. So uh, with hindsight, then, we can say that the eternal distinction between the father and the son is the condition within the very nature of God, which makes possible the joining of a great multitude to the Trinitarian dynamic. Now think about that. Uh, I do not even know if I'm right about this. I think I am. I've thought about this a long time. I'm, I'm trying to ask, what is it about God that makes it somehow fitting that God should allow us so deeply inside his own divine life and the Trinitarian uh, movements. And I'm saying it's precisely because within the one God there is a distinction that there's a room, that there's room, therefore, within the, the, the structure of God's being There's room for more than one. And it's not just going to be, well, we'll limit ourselves to sun and spirit. No, there's room for a multitude. There's room for the whole creation inside God. And that's, there's something about God's own nature. And I, I I use that. It's all the words limp, of course, because they sound strange, but they're if you realize well, but yeah i 'm just trying to talk about something that we only have the language of birth for, so I talk about the structure of god 's being. the structure of god 's being allows for a great multitude to be joined to it. Now, I go back to the slain lamb and and, and, and talk about this. Um, this to me is a is a, is a very important and, and deep meditation it 's not mine. It's it's what I get from gazing at the at the slain lamb. So here's here's the thought: there is an infinite distance, so to speak, between the father and the son, just in virtue of their being distinct. Now that's strange. I, I wrote the word distance and I put it in quotation marks because we don't usually we we don't usually use the word distance for what's the difference between father and son. We just say different, not the same. But I want to use the word distance here because I'm trying to understand what happened when the son, who is eternally and therefore infinitely different from the father, though in relationship with him, what happens when he becomes... Incarnate, and more so, what happens when he goes all the way to death on a cross? He's taking that structure of himself as son, which is his being different from the father, and he's turning it into the distance from God that sin is. This is this is this is amazing. So, so I'm trying to explore this with the language here. So I write: thus, infinitely distinct. At the same time, they are infinitely close in love in one nature. But it is this distance that qualifies the sun for incarnation. Where, now listen to this. This is. It took me forever to sort of try to write this out, but I think I've got it here where he transposes a distance from the Father that is holy. His distance, his difference from the Father, that's holy. That's sacred. That's in the very nature of God, that the Son and the Father are not the same. So, But in the incarnation, he transposes that distance from the Father, and he lets it become the distance of a creature and a sinner from God. Then he, as it were, waits for a while in this distance uh, for a while. And then I quote again, it's the once of of Revelation 118, once I was dead. He he is in the condition of being dead. The son is in the condition of being dead. He can still be God because he is different from the father. And that's part of being God for the son. But he's transposed it now into sin and death and feeling all of its burden and weight and letting, and back to reading my text, letting the whole horror of sin's distance from God have its head. And then he is once again in the original closeness. The distance of creatureliness and sin being transformed into the distance of father from son. So this is resurrection then. Um, the Lamb that was slain, and we read in the in the Revelation text where the Lamb that was slain is there. He leads all who follow him to the same source from which he derives his being. I'm quoting Revelation seven seventeen. For the Lamb who is in the center of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to springs of living water. So the slain Lamb rises, and the slain Lamb leads us into springs of water is what the text says that those springs of water are the source that the father is the source that the father is for the son, the source that he has been for the son from all eternity. Now he is the source of the dead son's resurrection. And as the source of the dead son resurrection, he is the father that he has always been to the son. But now the son has done something that makes it possible for a great multitude to be joined to him in his, let's call it in his return to the father. And so all of these multitude that are joined to him uh, are there uh, in the vision singing a new song. Uh, we read that there, there was the lamb, this is Revelation chapter 14 verse 6, there was the lamb standing on Mount Zion and with him, see this is the point, get the with him, That's gonna, it's going to be us, with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name, written on their foreheads. That then is our new ecclesial identity. Who am I? I'm the one who has his name and the father's name written on me. I am in that relationship. And I sing a new song. And what's new here is that human beings weren't inside the Trinity before. Now we are. And, uh, and we sing, um, salvation is from, and that's another song, that's, that's part of the text of the new song. Salvation is from God and from the Lamb. That's the song that the church sings. And that's what the church is. What am I doing here? I'm doing theology by digging around in the meaning of the Eucharistic Assembly, guided by the scriptural text in my digging around. Totally guided by it. Totally guided by the structure of the Eucharist itself. And that's letting us think about the Trinity in a way that we couldn't otherwise think about it. That's then theology at the Eucharistic table. That's our method.
2: It reminds me of, uh, you know, as you spoke about us as the 144,000 with his name written on our foreheads. Um, It reminds me, of course, of baptism where the cross is traced on our forehead. Um, Mm. And of course the lamb standing is uh, standing and slain. Whenever you look at a crucifix, that's what you see. You see the lamb standing. Yes. He's, he's hanging on the cross, but in another way, he's standing victorious on that cross, on that throne.
0: Yeah, and
2: it's on that with that with that very sign. That we that we are marked in our baptism. So we're even we're even marked with his um, with his being slain, and yet his his, con- his conquering over that. Um, and that's that's how. As the hundred and forty-four thousand were able to stand there with him at our head, um, just reminds you how how important baptism baptism really is as a Christian, and how the Trinity is is a huge part of that. Of course, we're baptized what in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, yeah. um, in the names of the three persons of the Trinity. Um, once again, a part of the, our entrance into that, that true liturgy of, of heaven.
0: It's, it's In a sense, it's striking that uh, I don't think we avert to it in quite directly enough, but uh, when we make the sign of the cross on our, on our bodies, we say uh, the Trinity's name. In the name mm. of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, and that's a, you know that can, that can be a constant reminder to us, as what I said before. There's no revelation of the Trinity apart from the slain Lamb, and that that's yeah. why we. I I think that's just wonderful that wow. you know every time we pick the cross <laughs> we awesome. say, "In the name of the Father, the Son of the Holy Spirit."
2: Yeah, that's that's really awesome. It's a good reminder.
1: Yeah. Wow. So the the Trinity and the cross are inseparable.
2: Yeah.
0: the The cross reveals the Trinity. That's that's the center. And of course, when you say cross, you, that you include resurrection in the sense of that's the that's the Father's res, resurrection is the Father's response to the cross.
1: I have a question for that, but maybe just a point of clarification. Maybe a technical question that Uh it's not that important, but when we say, so the 144,000 are with the lamb and you made the point that will be us. And it's, so it's not, it's so the father is not alone. The son is not alone. The spirits, there's more to the Trinity in the image, in the, in the, in the revelation there's more to the trinity there's also others there and and the others that will be us i think it was in a conversation here before or i couldn't remember exactly but not so long ago i was talking i was having a conversation with somebody we were talking about how in heaven there is We say both things at once that there's only God in heaven, and at the same time there are others in heaven. There, are, there are saints and angels and so forth, or not so forth. Guess that's all. There are saints and angels, <laughs> but but so how do we say both at the same time? And that's because the saints and angels are in the sun, are grafted in the sun, mm-hmm. and so it's by virtue of being. In the sun that the one hundred and forty four thousand are in heaven in the Trinity, so in other words, it's not the Father the Son, the Holy Spirit, and the one hundred and forty four thousand, but rather the Father the Son, the Holy Spirit, and then you you click on the hyperlink, the sun, <laughs> you want <laughs> the one hundred and forty four thousand is that yeah. is that accurate?
0: yes I think so uh, except I, I think the manifestations would be such that the the heavenly assemblies show that the sun does the Sun does not have an existence apart from us he, he is this is this is the I call that uh, I think we use that term in the last thing—the permanent soteriological significance of the incarnation. He's not just incarnate for a while; he is incarnate from the from his first moment on, for, from all eternity. The, he he ascends into heaven in our humanity. So, uh, I want to, I mean, that's a, it's good what you say, and you know, the image of the hyperlink is good. Uh, but just as long as we understand that there, that there is no Christ without all of us joined to him. Mm-hmm. And don't just take the 144,000, which is one of the images, uh, and another image images is Israel is, is there. That's especially an image of Israel. But you also have uh, a countless multitude is described from every tribe and race and nation and tongue. So the, uh, so that you realize that um, heaven God, God is never not in relationship with us. He doesn't want to be God sort of like saving humanity on the side of things, you know, and can I do that too. Meanwhile, I run the rest of the universe, you know, Mm -hmm. no, uh, his, he has completely taken up uh, humanity into himself, uh, in such a way that I, you know, I think probably one of the things that's driving me here are that not only the visions from the book of revelation, but, uh, you can't read Dante's divine comedy and not, especially the Paradiso, you know, where the descriptions of heaven, which are just unbelievable um, celebration of same ranks and ranks of saints uh, gathered around the Trinity and our lady in contemplation. It's, it's, it's so beautiful to think of that, and and so you're thinking of the Trinity, and the the Church. I want to use this word Church. Remember the etymology of the word Church: the assembly, the ecclesia, those called out, uh, which is the is the summons to the to the whole creation is is taken up into the ecclesia. Another image of it, Nelson, is the the climax of or one of two climaxes in the text of chapter one in Ephesians, everything recapitulated in Christ, everything in heaven and on earth recapitulated in Christ. I think that it can be good to, uh, maybe I've already done this. I don't know, but I want to do it again because I think it's so important for me. It's a very useful uh, prayer that I, that I pray privately. We pray it liturgically as well, but it's a it's a desire to to pray uh, the glory of pottery in a, in a contemplative way. So, you know, we say glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. But uh, have I talked with you about changing the prepositions around? Does that ring a bell for you, Ben or, or Nelson? It does, so, yeah. Was
2: we'll say- it? Did I talk about right, it? Go ahead. I, well, I, don't, yeah. I don't remember it right. <laughs> okay.
0: So, no, you can say, and I do this when I pray alone. Uh, and and, and like, here's, here, let me just offer this as a sharing way. I pray that I think you guys could pray, and, and maybe our listeners would want to do that too. I, I just I sit still sometimes before the Blessed Sacrament is a good way to do it, but I also just in other places of prayer. And become sort of aware of myself as, you know, temple of the Holy Spirit, if you will, or as member of the body of Christ. And then I just start uh, saying, glory be to the Father. But then I, I say, from the Son and from the Holy Spirit. And I'm aware that the from is coming from me in the Son and in the Holy Spirit. Do you understand what I mean? So, I say, glory be to the Father from the Son and from the Holy Spirit, from within me. And this is, this is really wonderful, because then the, the second half of the prayer, as it was in the beginning, in other words, in me now, in my prayer, There's coming forth this movement of glory toward the Father that was there from the Son and the Spirit from from all eternity. But as it was in the beginning, is now, is now here while I'm praying. Is now while I'm alive on earth, my life. This glory comes from me to the Father, from me meaning from me in the son and in the holy spirit and uh, and will be forever world without end amen so uh, that that's I'm, I'm already now in my moment of prayer as my eternity will be and then and then i i just i i changed the words around uh, glory be from the father to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. And I'm in the middle of that movement so that I feel glory from the Father to the Son, and I feel the Son and the Holy Spirit sharing in me, in me, the way in which uh, the Father pours out his divine life in the eternally begetting of the Son, and in the procession of the Holy Spirit from himself. And then I say, you can do it in it, I don't have a particular order, I do it in glory be to the Father and to the Son from the Holy Spirit. And I feel the Holy Spirit in me as working to give glory to both the Father and the Son. You know, in a way that's, much bigger than than me. But it's from me because I have the Holy Spirit working in me. I have the anointing of the Spirit. And so I am anointed to give glory to the Father and the Son from the Holy Spirit. And again, as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be, world without ending. Glory be to the Father from the son and from the Holy spirit glory be from the father and the son to the Holy spirit, because they love the spirit as the one who knows them and so forth. So I don't know. I love that prayer. i prayed a lot and I probably get all charged up about the Trinity because i prayed that way. So I just think it's good for me to share that. I got that. um, I got that from studying patristics uh, and just, uh, Knowing that the, the the Trinitarian doxology in uh, in the ancient church uh, had different prepositions in them, and then throughout the councils uh, the prepositions fell out. Just glory be to uh, the Father and 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 not changing any prepositions because uh, the people were subjecting the prepositions to heresies of subordinationism or other things like that but I, I i think it's kind of too bad to have lost the old doxologies with with those prepositions i just say explain them correctly and be done with it but uh, anyway so but we understand very them much. in an orthodox way and just see if that doesn't help you in your own prayer you know to to, to to roam around in this mystery, that's what I'm wanting to urge both of you guys to do. You've got to roam around in this mystery. And then, and then you'll be driven to share it, like Aya.
1: We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Theology at the Eucharistic Table podcast. Remember to leave us a review on iTunes which helps those who are searching for content similar to ours to find our show, to like and share our Facebook page, to subscribe to our newsletter at theology@mountangel.com, at that's theology, A-T-M-T, angel.com and to tell your friends about our podcast, especially the seminarians, priests, and seminary professors whom you know. Above all, we ask you to pray for us seminarians, priests, monks, and professors at Mount Angel Abbey and Seminary, and to take the content from this episode into your own prayer. Until next time.